Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to MitoAction's monthly expert series. My name is Kyra Mann, CEO of MitoAction, and we are honored that you took the time out of your day to be here with us. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website in the coming days, as well as on our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on our website at www.mitoaction.org slash resources slash mitoautism. If you're joining us via computer, you should see the presentation on your screen. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature on the bottom menu bar of your screen. If you're calling in via phone, feel free to submit your questions via email to info at mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. As more and more information is uncovered about mitochondrial disease, it's evident that there are connections to mitochondrial disease to so many other major diagnoses, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, cancers, and more. Today, we are privileged to have with us one of the pioneers and thought leaders in mitochondrial disease. Dr. Douglas Wallace is here to discuss with us the relationship between mitochondrial disease and autism. Dr. Wallace is the director of the Center for Mitochondrial and Epigenomic Medicine at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. He holds the Michael and Charles Barnett Endowed Chair in Pediatric Mitochondrial Medicine and Metabolic Diseases. Dr. Wallace founded the field of human mitochondrial DNA, mtDNA genetics, and demonstrated that mtDNA variation has profound implications for human health and disease, the origins and ancient migrations of our ancestors, human and animal adaptation, and perhaps the origin of species. Dr. Wallace helped define the genes and proteins coded by the mtDNA and demonstrate their essential role in mitochondrial energy production. From this foundation, he was the first to identify inherited mtDNA mutations that result in disease. Initially, the neuropathy L, oh, I'm sorry, initially the mtDNA missense mutation that causes leader hereditary optic neuropathy LHAN and the protein synthesis mutation that causes myoclonic epilepsy and ragged red fiber disease. Since then, he has identified multiple pathogenic mtDNA mutations causing diseases as diverse as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and Alzheimer's disease. Currently, his web-based mtDNA information service, MitoMap, now lists hundreds of clinically relevant mtDNA mutations. He also showed that the accumulation of mtDNA mutations in tissue correlates with aging and age-related diseases. Dr. Wallace was also among the first to clone nuclear DNA-coded mitochondrial genes to show their relevance to disease and to demonstrate that variants in nDNA and mtDNA genes could interact to markedly affect an individual's phenotype. He also demonstrated that regional mtDNAs, when moved to new environments, can predispose to a wide range of complex diseases. Dr. Wallace was the first to develop mice models of mitochondrial disease and to invent a procedure for introducing mtDNA mutations into the mouse female germline. 
he has provided compelling evidence that mtDNA variation is central to health and common diseases. Dr. Wallace has received countless awards and recognitions for his seminal contributions to human, human and mammalian genetics, and he has published countless papers on his research and findings. In May of 2017, he received the Franklin Institute's prestigious Benjamin Franklin Medal for the Life Sciences, and on June 20th, 2017, it was announced that the 2017 Paul Janssen Award for Biomedical Research would be awarded to Dr. Wallace for pioneering the field of mitochondrial genetics and its application to the study of disease, aging, and patterns of human migration. We are honored to have him here with us today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Doug Wallace. Thank you very much for that uh, very gracious uh, introduction. Um, I'm going to uh, concentrate today on uh, whether mitochondrial variation is important in neuropsychiatric disorders using autism spectrum disorders as our primary focus. And this first slide is extremely busy, but I wanna set the stage for the things that I'm gonna talk about and we'll come back to the slide at the end and again, uh, recapitulate the things that we've found. The first thing to, to mention is that there's been a lot of interest in understanding the genetics of autism and autism spectrum disorders. And in fact, uh, early epidemiological data suggested that there was a very high hereditary component for uh, this group of neuropsychiatric disorders. And since um, the dominant genetic paradigm of Western medicine is the idea of Mendel that uh, each individual has two copies of the gene and the nuclear chromosomes, which are separated into the gametes and then at fertilization rebrought together to make new individuals. The idea was that then if there's a high genetic uh, component, then there must be nuclear genes that are critical for um, autism spectrum disorder. And as you may or may not know, literally tens of millions of dollars have now been spent on sequencing nuclear genomes, both as exomes and now whole genomes of many, many, many autism patients. Um, what that has revealed is that there are literally hundreds of uh, nuclear variants that account for only one or a few cases and only a few variants that themselves account for more than say 1% of all the cases of autism spectrum disorder. And that has led to the speculation that autism is caused by up to a thousand nuclear genes that, and that has been proposed to indicate that there are a thousand separate autism diseases. Now that would be interesting except for there are some fundamental things that seem to be common across all autism patients. So for all autism patients, each one was a separate disease. And how could we account for the uniformity that we see in the clinical presentations of autism? So one of the most striking things about autism is the marked male to female ratio with four males to every one female. Uh, this has been very difficult to explain by the nuclear genetic paradigm. So what are the phenotypes of autism? Well, there's a social deficit, there's repetitive behaviors, there are restricted interests, and there are alterations in the brain oscillations called the electroencephalographic uh, waves. Also, it's now very well 
well established that many autism patients have altered metabolism with elevated lactate, altered acyl carnitines, alanine, ammonia, and reduced pyruvate. There has been a number of cell culture and tissue studies that have shown defects in mitochondrial function to process oxidative phosphorylation. There have been a few cases of mutations in the mitochondrial DNA that have been associated with autism, including the mutation in the tRNA leucine gene at 3243 A to G and other cases of deletions in the mitochondrial DNA. Now, the nuclear uh, genome codes for literally one to 2,000 nuclear encoded genes that function in the mitochondria. And if you look through these thousands of genes that have been uh, identified, you see things like the mitochondrial RNA polymerase, uh, an enzyme that's involved in methyl regulation that's found in the mitochondria, and this important protein, uh, which is the aspartate glutamate carrier that's very important in mitochondrial uh, oxidation of hydrogens to make energy, and also things like parkin, which are involved in mitochondrial uh, uh, turnover and uh, maintenance of mitochondrial integrity. integrity. The um, ASLC25A12, the aspartate carrier, uh, has been studied extensively. Um, it is calcium sensitive, so it's activated by calcium, and it imports NADH, or hydrogen, into the mitochondria for synthesis of energy, if there's an excessive amount of NADH, it's going to increase mitochondrial reactive oxygen species production. There have also been mutations in the calcium transporters um, and also in uh, regulation of GABA, which is an important uh, neurotransmitter and in, involved in uh, inhibition of neurological activity. And the uh, GABA um, degradation enzyme has also been found to be linked to autism. Then there are also very interesting alterations in transcriptional regulation and the epigenome. So the uh, fragile X mental retardation protein binds for multiple RNAs. When signaling pathway has been found associated with autism, as have CH, uh, CDH8 and CDH9, which are now known to interact with the proteins, which are regulators of bioenergetics. And then there's a whole bunch of shared genetics between uh, autism spectrum disorder, shared genes that is, uh, intellectual disability, attention deficit hyperactivity syndrome, schizophrenia, bipolar charge syndrome, and also the mitochondria, implying that the variations that are being found in autism may in fact have commonality in pathophysiology across a large number of neuropsychiatric disorders. In addition, uh, there are some well-known uh, syndromic types of autism spectrum disorders. Timothy syndrome is a mutation in a calcium uh, a transporter associated with autism. Uh, Rett syndrome is a mutation in the MECC protein, and that's associated with autism and has recently been shown to be associated with an OXFOS defect. Angelman syndrome is associated with mutations in the ubiquitin uh, protein UBE3A, and we showed that it's involved in an OXFOS defect. Sclerosis, um, a mutation in the TSC1 uh, and 2 proteins are involved in the TOR pathway, which regulates energetics and mitophagy. Fragile X syndrome with fragile X mental retardation, we've recently shown is involved in uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, but also regulates mTOR and UBE3A. 
as well as TSC2. And then the 16, uh, 1611.2 deletion has uh, changes in these particular proteins, which I'll show you uh, correlate with expression changes in OXFOS. So over the last basically 25 years, we feel that we've slowly begun to show that one after the other of both non-syndromic and syndromic autism can be associated with bioenergetic effects. So what is uh, actually a bioenergetic effect? So this shows the uh, fact that mitochondrial uh, function is central to human health. This is just a diagram of a single mitochondrion. This is its outer membrane, its inner intermembrane space, its inner membrane and cytoplasm of the original symbiotic bacteria we call the matrix. And the mitochondria burns hydrogen coming from glucose and fatty acids by the process oxidative phosphorylation. So just using glucose as an example, it goes through a pathway called glycolysis. It can get reduced to give you lactate if it builds up in the cytoplasm, or it can get an amino group to give you alanine. Pyruvate goes through a pyruvate transporter to pyruvate dehydrogenase, and that then cleaves it to drive what's called the tricarb oxalic acid cycle or the Krebs cycle. And the purpose of this cycle is to strip hydrogens off the hydrocarbons and put them on the carrier NAD. So now you have the reduced form NADH. These two hydrogens then are burned by the electron transport chain. NADH dehydrogenase or complex one, electrons transferred to the lipid carrier coenzyme Q, to complex three, and to the uh, carrier cytochrome C, the cytochrome C oxidase or complex four, produce an atom of oxygen to a molecule of water. And the energy that's released as the electrons flow down this electron transport chain embedded in the inner membrane is used to pump positive charges from the mitochondrial matrix out through the inner membrane into the intermembrane space, create an acid and positive capacitor, acid and positive on the outside and alkaline and negative on the inside. And this electron, uh, elect electrochemical gradient can then be used by the ATP synthase to condense ADP and phosphate make ATP, and the ADP and ATP are exchanged across the inner membrane where they can go out to drive functional work. So we've then coupled oxidation with phosphorylation, it's the word oxidative phosphorylation. Now it turns out that everybody uh, has slightly different efficiencies at burning hydrogen to make an electrochemical gradient and converting that electrochemical gradient into ATP. And those people that are very efficient at doing this and then maximum amount of ATP for the minimum amount of calories burned. And a calorie is a unit of heat, so they'll generate minimum amount of heat inside their body, the maximum amount of work. If people are less efficient at putting proteins out or converting them to ATP, then they're gonna to have to burn more calories for the same amount of work, and that's gonna generate more heat. And it's that method of coupling that allows the mitochondria to regulate uh, our body temperature in association with uh, generating necessary energy for work. Now the mitochondria also being a furnace has uh, inefficient uh, combustion. Electrons can be donated directly to O2 to give you a single unpaired electron superoxide anion. We have enzyme manganese SOD that converts that to hydrogen peroxide. <clears throat> hydrogen peroxide can be reduced to water by glutathione peroxidase using uh, reducing equivalents from any DPH generated by nucleotide nicotinamide transhydrogenase, <clears throat> but this is a rate limiting step. So the hydrogen peroxide can get another electron from a transition metal to give you hydroxyl radical. 
And this and superoxide anion are the most potent oxidizing agents in your body. And they're the source of the oxygen radical damage that you read about in, in magazines. Mitochondria can also regulate calcium because of its negative charge inside and a carrier protein, the uh, uh, mitochondrial uh, calcium uniporter. And finally, if the um, membrane potential gets low, energy phosphates are declining, calcium level increases, or oxidative stress becomes extreme, it will impinge on the structure called the mitochondrial permeability transition pore, and ultimately it will open a channel between the cytoplasm and the mitochondrial matrix. Fluid will flow in, causing the inner membrane to swell. X and back will form a mega channel to release these stored proteins, and they will degrade the cell from inside out, thus destroying all the bacteria, that is the mitochondrial bacteria in our cells, thus avoiding their creation of an inflammatory response. And finally, all of these intermediates of the electron of the TCA cycle, the Krebs cycle, are actually critical protein, critical substrates used by the epigenome to regulate uh, all the expression of the nucleocapsid genes. So the mitochondria generates most of the energy, regulates redox balance, generates reactive oxygen species, which can be signaling molecules, but if their high levels are damaging, regulates calcium, regulates cell death, and also regulates nuclear gene expression. So the a reason that we then have this dichotomy between anatomy and energetics is because of the symbiosis that occurred 5 billion years ago when an archaeobacteria formed a relationship with an oxidative bacteria. The oxidative bacteria gave rise to our mitochondria, of which you now have hundreds to thousands in each of your cells. Many of the original genes on the oxidative bacteria were transferred to the nucleus, where they now reside, about 1 to 2,000, and they then are read on cytosolic ribosomes to assemble the mitochondrial structure. But the mitochondrial DNA has retained the wiring diagram of the power plant, um, and that's exactly like how we build power plants here uh, in the United States. We have the wiring diag diagram in each power plant because each wiring diagram is separate depending on the structure of the power plant. The overall plans for building the power plant are at the city manager's office, and that's the same plan that we have in our cells. So the mitochondrial DNA then codes for ribosomal RNAs, um, trans uh, messenger RNAs, transfer RNAs, messenger RNAs, and ribosomal RNAs, and these uh, messenger RNAs are translated on mitochondrial ribosomes, and they are sensitive to bacterial inhibitors like chloramphenicol. So there are 13 messenger RNAs. They encode seven of the 45 proteins of complex one, one of the 11 proteins of complex three, three of the 13 proteins of complex four, and two of the 17 proteins of complex five. Now, defects in mitochondrial DNA will impair energy metabolism, and they are not necessarily blocking energy metabolism. They might just reduce it, and that reduction in energy metabolism then can cause an energetic defect in the most energy-demanding tissues, and your brain uses 2% is your percent of your body weight. It uses 20% of all your mitochondrial energy, so therefore, a 5% reduction in mitochondrial energy creates the equivalent of a metropolitan brownout in your brain and gives you then a neurological symptom, which I'm going to argue is fundamental to neuropsychiatric disorders. Other organs that are important, high energy demands from mitochondria are the heart, the muscle, the renal, endocrine, and the intestinal systems. So as you get more and more severe mitochondrial defects, you have lower and lower organelle 
energy output. And those organs with highest energy demand are the ones that are progressively affected in disease. And since the brain is the most sensitive, obviously, and neuropsychiatric disorders should be the most common mitochondrial defects. So the mitochondrial DNA is now only 16,569 base pairs. It codes for a small and a large ribosomal RNA, 22 transfer RNAs that punctuate all the protein coding genes, seven of the subunits of complex one, ND1, 2, 3, 4, L4, 5, and 6, cytochrome B of complex 3, CO1, 2, and 3 of complex 4, and ATK6 and 8 for complex 5. Uh, the mitochondrial DNA is highly variable across populations, and therefore you wouldn't want to mix um, different mitochondrial DNAs together because you might a tightly coupled complex 1 with a loosely coupled complex 3 and short circuit the, um, the electrochemical gradient. So the way that's avoided is by uh, blocking all, um, all mixing of male and female mitochondrial DNAs. And the way that's done is by having the mitochondrial DNA exclusively maternally inherited. So it's transmitted from a mother to all of her children and her daughters to their children, whereas the male's mitochondrial DNA enters the egg, are seen as foreign and are destroyed. So the only way the mitochondrial DNA can change is by sequential mutations along radiating maternal lineages. Now, the mitochondria inside your cell are constantly replicating and accumulating mutations, but the process of mitophagy is eating up the damaged mitochondrial DNAs at a certain rate. And so you can then create a situation where your cells have a mixture of mutant and normal mitochondrial DNAs, and we call that heteroplasmy. So if the cell divided down the middle, then each daughter cell would get some mutant and some normal. If it divided this way, this cell would have only normal, and this would have twice as many mutant. So as an a fertilized zygote begins to divide through this random segregation process, you can get different tissues, some of which have predominantly normal mitochondrial DNAs and high energy output, and others with increasingly lower, more mutant mitochondrial DNAs and lower energy output, until the number of mutant mitochondrial DNAs drops energy below the minimum for that organ, and now you get a clinical symptom. So there have been hundreds of mutant mitochondrial uh, germline mitochondrial DNA mutations that give maternally inherited diseases. This mutation disposes you to midlife sensory neural hearing loss, and this is a mitochondrial nucleotide number, 1555. This mutation um, uh, in the tyranny leucine gene, that disposes you to diabetes at a low heteroplasmy, neuro, uh, neuromuscular disease at a high heteroplasmy, and lethal childhood syndrome when it's close to 100% mutant. And this variant, um, disposes you to a signs of myoclonic epilepsy. Uh, there are also um, missense mutations in the mitochondrial DNA. This variant in 11778 and the ND6 gene, um, if you inherit that from your mother, you're fine until midlife, then you'll suddenly lose vision in one eye and then in the other. That's the labor's hereditary optic neuropathy and then you're legally blind. These mutations at 14484 and 14459, they also predispose to labor's hereditary optic neuropathy. For this mutation in the ATPA6 gene at 8993, if you're 80% mutant, you have retinal problems. If you have 80% mutant, your brainstem and your cerebellum degenerate. And if you have 100% mutant, you die as an infant with Lee syndrome. And so we have literally hundreds now of pathogenic mutations. These are also ancient polymorphisms. So this variant arose in Africa and it is a marker for three quarters of sub-Saharan African mitochondrial DNA. So that's a foundation African macro haplogroup. This variant 
defines half of European lineages, that's haplogroup H, variants A, B, C, and D. They arose in Central Asia, crossed the Bering Land Bridge, and colonized the Americas. So these variants define mitochondrial lineages that allowed our ancestors to change energy metabolism and adapt to different environments. And then we accumulate somatic mutations as we age, and that's the aging clock. So basically then, if we put energy in the middle of medicine instead of anatomy as it currently is, we can see that all the common diseases have the same pathophysiological mechanism, which is declining oxidative phosphorylation. This can be due to mutations in nuclear genes or changes in their expression, due to mitochondrial variants, ancient adaptive polymorphisms, or recent deleterious mutations, changes in the substrates that we uh, are on our diet, uh, all how we use the uh, energy for uh, activities, reproduction, and so on, or whether we're exposed to toxins like smoking. If we impair mitochondrial function, we impair mitochondrial DNA replication, we accumulate age-related deletions and damage, and that then erodes energetics, and we believe that is the aging clock. And that's also why many of the common diseases of the brain, heart, muscle, and renal have a delayed onset and progressive course, because the individual is born with an energetic capacity that's sufficient for the organ, as the um, mitochondrial damage erodes that, they also often then cost the expression thresholds. You have neuropsychiatric disorders, cardiac, muscle, and renal. And if you impair the mitochondrial function, then you can't use up the substrates, the glucose and fatty acids, they accumulate, and that's diabetes and metabolic syndrome. And if energetics is impaired enough that apoptosis fails, and you release all these bacteria in the bloodstream, and now you get an inflammatory response. And that's why all of these common diseases also have a, uh, associated inflammation. So this is uh, then an example of one of the pedigrees we studied in the early 1980s. This woman had lactic acidosis and growth retardation of those individuals we could examine. They had dementia, stroke-like episodes, atrophic cardiomyopathy, cardiac conduction defects. Their oxidative muscle fibers degenerated. Their glycolytic fibers were sustained. Um, and then ultimately, these young men and women all died in their late teens or early 30s of either going into a seizure, status epilepticus, or from cardiac failure due to cardiac dysrhythmia. It ultimately turned out that this is due to a mutation in the tRNA leucine gene at 3243 and A to G transition. And this pedigree had 70% of the mitochondrial DNA's mutant, 30% wild type, and that resulted in myopathy, cardiopathy, and stroke-like episodes, the so-called Milos syndrome. But amazingly enough, the same mutation, when present in only 10 to 30% mutant, can give you type 1 or type 2 diabetes or autism, and when at 100% mutant, will kill you as an infant with Lee syndrome. So how could exactly the same mutation give you such totally different clinical symptoms? And so what we did is we made cell lines that had the same nucleus but with different percentages of the mutant and normal mitochondrial DNA. But these are called trans-mitochondrial cybrids. And we could take these cell lines and sequence all the messenger RNAs in the cells and correlate the RNA transcript levels with the mitochondrial DNA genotype. And what we found is that this is the uh, so-called principal component analysis. This is the mitochondrial, this is the transcripts of all the, all the genes in the cell for a normal individual genome. 
for the normal mitochondrial DNA, 0% mutant. This is the transcription profile of all the genes for the diabetes and autism uh, genotype. These are the transcriptional profiles for all the gene mitochondrial genotypes for neurodegenerative disease. And these are the mitochondrial, these are the transcriptional profiles, for the mitochondrial genotype for lethal light Lee syndrome and uh, uh, needle lethality. And this is the transcriptional profile for a cell with no mitochondrial DNA. So what you can see as, as the percentage of mitochondrial DNAs changes to give you the different disease causing genotypes there is a change in the nuclear gene expression profile that is, makes these very distinctive um, molecular uh, cellular forms. So for the diabetes form, 20 to 30%, these are the transcription factors that are active and inactive. For the uh, neuromuscular disease, this is the set of factors. For the lethal childhood disease, this separate set of factors. And for a cell with no mitochondrial DNA, this factor. So basically what we're seeing then is that mitochondrial genotype is telling the nucleus what genes to express and therefore clinical phenotype. So how could that happen? Well, the mitochondria, as I said, um, not only makes uh, the energy through oxidative phosphorylation, but it also has this tricarboxylic acid cycle. And this cycle then uh, is how we strip the hydrogens off the hydrocarbon for use in making energy. And this, of course, is going to be regulated by the flux of uh, electrons through the electron transport chain, which are donated by the NAD and the NADH generated by the TCA cycle. So what happens then is that the mitochondrial substrates, these intermediates of mitochondrial function, exported in certain ways into the cytoplasm. And there, they are processed make the substrates for all the enzymes that regulate the nuclear gene expression. So citrate from the TCA cycle is metabolized by ATP citrate lyase to give oxaloacetate and acetyl-CoA, and acetyl-CoA is used by all the histone acetylases to acetylate histones. And NAD is a critical cofactor for one of the histone deacetylases, and that then deacetylates the histones allowing the reciprocal regulation. Folates inside the mitochondria are bind, reacted with ATP in the cytoplasm to give S-adenosylmethionine, and that's the donator of methyl for both methylating histones and DNA. And then alpha-ketoglutarate is a key enzyme a substrate for all the uh, dioxygenases, which are included those that regulate HIF-1-alpha, which is involved in regulating glycolysis, also in demethylating histones and demethylating DNA. And succinate, which is another intermediate, it's an inhibitor of this process. So alpha-ketoglutate drives the dioxygenases and succinate inhibits them. So we could go on and on, but the point is that all of the nuclear gene expression is directly cued to the mitochondrial energetics. The very obvious reason that without energy, there's no reason for the nuclear DNA to tra be transcribed or to replicate. So it has to know what the mitochondrial energetics is. So to test this idea, we then uh, took um, a heavy labeled glucose, fed it to these cybrid cells that I mentioned, that went to pyruvate, citrate, to acetyl-CoA, and back to acetylating stones. So if we now look at the level of acetyl-CoA, 
in the cytoplasm from uh, cells fed with this system relative to the mitochondrial DNA genotype, we see that cells with no mutant mitochondrial DNAs has a high level of labeled acetyl-CoA. When you have 100% mutant um, 3243, have a reduced acetyl-CoA. If you block the mitochondrial ribosome with chloramphenicol, you completely block the flux of acetyl-CoA to um, the cytoplasm. If you wash out the chloramphenicol, you return it to normal. And now if you look at the heavy carbon from the glucose as acetylation of the histone, if you have 0% mutant, you have a high level of acetylation with the C4, C13 from glucose. You have 100% mutant, you reduce that. When you add chloramphenicol, you block it. When you wash out the chloramphenicol, it returns. So if we look at the percentage of mitochondrial mutant relative to the acetyl-CoA level shown in blue, it's pretty constant to up to about 70%, and then it declines, and that's associated with then the loss of histone acetylation. Or if we look at alpha-ketoglutarate, remember that demethylates DNA. So now if we look at a C14 into alpha-ketoglutarate, we see that it's high at 0% mutant mitochondrial DNA, lower at 100% mutant mitochondrial DNA, blocked with chloramphenicol, and returned when we wash out the chloramphenicol. And if we look at the chloramphenicol blockage of alpha-ketoglutarate, what we see is increase in the uh, methylation groups, the methyl groups in histones. Or looking across the genotypes of the um, 3243 mutant, um, uh, alpha-ketoglutarate starts low to a maximum at 50% and declines to almost zero at 100% mutant, and the methylation groups decline and then go back up. So what we really end up having is a metabolic profile regulating nuclear gene expression through modulation of the epigenome. So if we look at three different experiments with 0% mutant mitochondrial DNA or 100% mutant mitochondrial DNA, and we look at all the acetylated histones, you can see the difference between two genotypes. Or if we correlate all of the different mitochondrial substrates versus all of the acetylation and methylation of the histones relative to the percentage of mutant mitochondrial DNA, we found 150 discrete um, histone modifications that were directly cued to the mitochondrial genotype through different of the substrates uh, generated by the mitochondrial TCA cycle. So this is how the mitochondria regulates the nucleus to determine the clinical phenotype. If we look at some of the interesting um, genes that are associated with autism, it's the, uh, uh, the group um, that uh, correlate in a nuclear gene mutation uh, with autism. Uh, this is MEC-CP2 uh, for Rett syndrome, and this shows the percentage of mutant mitochondrial DNAs and the expression level of these um, RNAs. It's down at lower percent in the autism and diabetes, up in the neurodegenerative disease, and down in the lethal childhood disease. And this is KCTD13, which is the chromosome 16 deletion key gene it's down at 20 to 30%, up at 50 to 90%, down at 100%. So all of the autism uh, nuclear genes that we've looked at follow the same expression profile that we see for all of the mitochondrial genes, applying that they are all related in some way to mitochondrial function. 
So if we now look at a mutation that causes diabetes, this is the tRNA leucine gene again, 3243. And in Europeans, if it's 20 to 30% mutant, it will give type diabetes. We were doing a big study in Asia and we found this pedigree, which has maternal inherited type two diabetes shown here with the increased AC level. But when we did the mitochondrial DNA sequence, it turned out it was 88%3243G. That should be a mutation level that gives you neurological disease, I mean, uh, neuro cardiac and muscle disease. But in fact, they only had diabetes. So how could that be? Well, it turns out that the background mitochondrial DNA on which this mutation occurred was a lineage N9A. And N9A is in fact a lineage that is highly protective of um, type 2 diabetes. So the background N9A compensated for the more high-level mitochondrial DNA mutation resulting in milder diabetes phenotype. So where do these different haplogroups or lineages come from? Well, in fact, our ancestors started out in Africa about 150 to 2,000 years. 100,000 years ago, with a particular mitochondrial DNA we call L0. L0 gave rise to L1 and L2, two different me lineages. And then uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, L3 was generated. And L3 in Ethiopia gave rise to two mitochondrial DNAs, M and N, the only mitochondrial DNAs that left Africa and colonized the rest of the world. M stayed in the tracks all the way to Australia and much later gave rise to European lineage, I mean, Asian lineages such as C, D, and G and a whole bunch of M's. M moved directly into the temperate zone, giving European lineages such as H, J, T, U, U, K, V, I, W, X, and then moved laterally to colonize also Asia. So Europe has only N mitochondrial DNAs, whereas Asia has both M and N mitochondrial DNAs, and then ultimately A, C and D, A from N, C and D from M, cross the Bering Land Bridge to colonize the Americas. Now, why would there be such a high geographic correlation between mitochondrial genotypes and geographic origin? And we believe the reason is because these mitochondrial DNAs are acquiring mutations that change the coupling efficiency and allowed our ancestors to adapt to different environments. So out of Africa, the N lineage acquired two missense mutations in ND3 at 10398, alanine 114 to threonine, and ATPA6 8701, alanine 59 to threonine. And what these mutations did is they decreased the coupling efficiency and allowed these individuals to move into the colder um, temperate zone. And ultimately, then additional mutations occurred in the Chicote area and crossed the Bering Land Bridge to colonize the Americas. So the mitochondrial background is then adapting our energetics allow us to adjust our energy metabolism to different environmental states. So what does this have to do then with um, autism? Well, then we did a study using the AGREE database, and we looked at all the mitochondrial DNAs associated with autism. And it's primarily a European-based database. And if we look at European lineages, I, J, K, T, U, and X, and we look at the odds ratios for getting autism, we see that it's in the range of two. Um, now, if you're male, you're uh, four times more likely to get autism than if you're female. And if you have one of these mitochondrial haplogroups, you're half as likely to get autism um, as you are if you were male. So this is a very, very strong effect on predisposition to autism, highly statistically significant. Now, these 
IJKTU and X account for 55% of all European mitochondrial DNAs relative to the most common lineage R0, which involves H. So that means that half of all the European mitochondrial DNAs are at twofold increased risk for autism than are the remaining majority of the mitochondrial DNAs. So this is by far the most important risk factor for autism with better, more important than all the nuclear genes put together. Moreover, another group, uh, Wang, Picard, and Gu, they actually sequenced the mitochondrial DNAs from lineages, maternal lineages of autism. And they showed that the individuals in the pedigree that actually got autism phenotypes had a higher percentage of deleterious somatic mitochondrial DNA mutations than did the siblings with, which did not develop autism. So again, there is a background predisposition by the haplogroup group and additional somatic mutations that push you over the expression threshold to give you the clinical phenotype. And no amount of nuclear gene sequencing would have ever, in fact, solved this uh, genetic predisposition. So then uh, we wanted to prove that mitochondrial variation could cause autism phenotypes. But of course, we had to prove that by a cause and effect experiment. So what we decided to do is make mutants in the mouse and see if those mutations could create then autism-like phenotypes. So the first thing we did is we made embryonic stem cells and we knocked out the nuclear encoded adenine nucleotide translocator gene. This exchanges the ATP and ADP across the inner membrane and it's uh, one of the isoforms for ANT in the brain, heart, and muscle. So it's a partial defect in ANT. Now, why is that interesting? Well, to create then neuro neurological oscillations that are involved in intelligence, we need both excitatory neurons that are parameteratory neurons and inhibitory neurons, which are the glutamatergic interneurons. So these are, these are a glutamatergic, I'm sorry, the excitatory are glutamatergic and the inhibitory, which are in blue, are gabinergic. So we have gabinergic inhibitory neurons, glutamatergic excitatory neurons, and they form an oscillation that creates then the brain oscillation. But what's interesting in development is that the glutamatergic neurons, the excitatory neurons, are born at the base of the developing cortex and migrate radially, whereas the gabinergic neurons are born at the base of the brain and have to migrate tangentially all the way across the brain. So it takes a lot more energy for the interneurons to migrate than it does for the pyramidal uh, neurons to migrate. So we hypothesize that maybe an energetic effect would impair this migration of the interneurons, depleting the inhibitory effect and allowing an excess of the excitatory defect. And that's exactly what we saw. So this is um, a mouse cortex with the ANT that's normal and the mutant ANT. And you can see in the wild type ANT, the um, gabinergic interneurons are migrating tangentially along the cortex. In the mutant ANT, they actually are confused. They do not know how to find their right partners. And you can do this by an, a chemical inhibitor that also blocks the adenonucleotide translocator and creates the same abnormal migration. If we now look at animals, um, and their compulsive behavior with different mitochondrial genotypes. If we look at the ANT, we see they're slightly more compulsive than the controls. 
And if we look at a mitochondrial DNA mutation in the ND6 gene, they're much more impulsive. We can see this also, the uh, complex one mitochondrial gene and the nuclear ANT gene produce social behavior. And an antioxidant enzyme, nicotinamide nucleoside transfer hydrogenase, also shows impaired social behavior. So what we're seeing then is a number of mild mitochondrial defects are resulting in a neuropsychiatric symptom. So to get more data on that, we created uh, a mouse that had a mutation in the ND6 gene at proline 25 to leucine. This is the same mutation that's found in patients that have at high levels of mutant severe mitochondrial disease, such as Lee syndrome. So we took the cell line with this uh, mitochondrial DNA mutation, we removed its nucleus, we took the cytoplasmic fragment, we made a female embryonic stem cell line, we removed its mitochondria with rhodamine 6G, and we then fused in the mutant mitochondria, retaining the pluripotent nucleus. Put it in the blastocyst, put it, took the cybrids, which are called cybrids, put them in the blastocyst, put it in foster mother, got chimeras of the black uh, blastocyst and the agouti um, stem cells, and then bred the uh, chimera animals those that transmitted the Goody locus, thus carrying the uh, mitochondrial DNA mutation. So now we have created a mouse with exactly the same mutation as we find in a clinical neurological phenotype in humans. So this mutation changes NADH dehydrogenase, and that will block then the oxidation of NAD, and therefore the animal will build up NED. And you can see that in this animal, we have about a 60% reduction in the specific activity of complex one. This animal looks perfectly normal. It doesn't look abnormal in structure. It's just energetically mildly impaired. And if we look at the brain for the NADH level, and this is a uh, um, visual system for looking at, we can see that there's a lot more NADH in the mutant brain is in the control. And so the NAD to NADH ratio is markedly depressed in these animals. And that drives the formation of high levels of reactive oxygen species. So we get a lot of ROS. So what does the ROS do? So uh, here we're looking at the ROS in the brains of control and mutant 26 animals. And we're using a PET system where we have F18 dihydroethidium. Now, ethidium will diffuse throughout the body, but when it sees superoxid anion, it gets a positive charge and gets blocked, stuck in that tissue cell. So with the 8-fluorine, uh, after washout, we can actually see where the superoxid anion, anion, anion was because that's where you'll have concentrations of the, um, uh, the that probe. So if we look at a normal mouse, we see a little bit of activity around the, behind the retina. If we give it an, uh, an inflammatory sti stimulus, this is a, um, a lipopolysaccharide from a gram-negative bacteria that causes inflammation, we see that the, in fact, normal animal increases its inflammation, both in the body and in the brain. Now, if we look at the ND6 animal, it already has inflammation similar to the uh, inf inflammation and stimulated normal animal. When we add the LPS to this animal, we get a massive cytokine storm. And why would that be? Well, it turns out to make cytokines, you use effector T cells. And these effector T cells then make the inflammation, the ROS, and the cytokines. 
we have now shown that the effector T cells are very low in their oxygen consumption. That is, they're basically glycolytic. Whereas the regulatory T cells that control effector T cells are highly oxidative. So the idea is that when you have a partial mitochondrial defect, you impair the regulatory T cells, allowing the inflammatory T cells to create more inflammation. Moreover, the T regulatory cells die off as we age, and that then further in, uh, releases the inflammation. So we think then that this inflammatory response due to mild mitochondrial defects is a major factor in the relationship between autism and inflammation. So then the question is, would in fact um, this mitochondrial DNA mutant animal have a autism-like phenotype? And here we're going to look at social interaction and social uh, two different uh, analyses. And we can see that the uh, social interaction of the mutant animal is unimpaired, whether it's uh, with the social group or with the non-social component, whereas the wild type animal would much prefer to be with the social animal, that is its animal counterpart, rather than the inanimate object. This is the same thing we see then uh, with another approach where they actually interact by sniffing each other. That there is a marked decrease in the social interaction of the ND6 mutant animal relative to the control. If we now look at the compulsive behavior, we see that the ND6 mutant animal is much more compulsive in burying marbles uh, in its nest, uh, in its um, nesting box, than is the wild type. And if we look at the uh, concern of the animal to be in a exposed environment, the mutant animal is much more frightened of moving into an exposed animal environment than the wild type, and it freezes when it's put in, an, uh, in a threatening environment, uh, shown here by the high level of freezing in the fear conditioning experiment. So it has all of the social interaction, compulsive behavior, and excessive anxiety that we see in autism. We can then ask whether this animal has an increased threshold for seizures. And to do that, we just feed a, a compound, um, fluorothylene, which inhibits the GABAergic neurons. And what you can see is that the uh, ND6 animal starts seizing at a lower level of the GABAergic inhibitory compound in the wild type. And if we now do electroencephalograph of these animals across all regions of the brain, these are all the electrodes the mouse brain, we can see that in the cortex, there is a alteration, a decrease in the delta wave and the theta waves of the mutant animal, and in the hippocampus, a uh, decrease in the delta waves. And overall, there's a generalized decrease in all of the EEG um, response times for the cortex. So these have the EEG modifications that we also see in patients with autism. We can then look at their mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation. Uh, we're looking at the hippocampus in the, uh, the cortex, the hippocampus, and the olfactory bulb, which should not be affected. And we can see that the uh, respiration studies of these different parameters are all down in the um, ND6 mutant animal relative to the control. And we also see respiration is down in the hippocampus, not affected in the olfactory bulb. And if we now look at mitochondrial reactive oxygen species production, we see that it's elevated in the, hip, in the cortex, although it's not in the hippocampus, in the olfactory bulb. 
So basically then these animals have a mild defect in energetics with increased oxidative stress, but without any gross anatomical change. And this is shown when we did a complete neuronal count of hippocampal neurons, parvalbumin, somatostatin, and neuropeptide uh, Y. And there was no difference in the number or distribution of the hippocampal neurons. Therefore, the defect that's causing the autism phenotype is not anatomical. It is only mitochondrial bioenergetic. Everything else was ruled out. So does this kind of neuropsychiatric effect of mitochondrial variation, is it generalizable to other um, neurological diseases? So here what we did, we simply put the mice, uh, we put the ND6, a CO1 mutant mouse, the ANT mouse, and the NNT mutant mouse into a constricted environment for 30 minutes and then uh, released it. And we measured corticosterone, the stress hormone. And we see that the ND6 animal had a higher response of corticosterone than the CO1 or the uh, wild type animal. If we look now at ANT and the nicotinamide nucleoside transhydrogenase, the ANT animal had a massive response to the stressor, whereas the nicotinamide nucleoside transhydrogenase knockout was completely oblivious to the stressor effect. And looking at the ANT more carefully, if we look at the, um, the uh, catecholamines, we're now looking at dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. We see that norepinephrine, the uh, flight uh, fight response is maximized whether the animal is unstressed or stressed for the ANT animals. So the ANT animals basically are already maximally stressed, and yet these animals look as normal as you and I. So this shows that anatomical resolution of energetics doesn't exist, but the neurobehavioral effects are massive. So then we wanted to know, well, what if we just mix two normal mitochondrial DNAs? And these are DNAs that are different from African versus an Eskimo. Again, we took mitochondrial DNA from one cell type, we mixed it with the mitochondrial DNA from another cell type to create a heteroplasmic animal. That animal then shows maternal inheritance of the heteroplasmy. This is the NZB, this is the 129, this is the founder mother, this is the daughter. Daughter transmits the heteroplasmy to all of her offspring, and her daughters transmit it to her offspring, whereas the males do not transmit the mutation, the, the heteroplasmy, and the heteroplasmy differs uh, about um, 90 nucleotides between the two different genomes. So now we have a heteroplasmic mouse. They all have exactly the same nucleus. We then segregate out the uh, NZB to 129, segregate out the 129 to NZB, and keep heteroplasmic animals. And then we ask, our, how about their activity? Well, mice are active at night, not at day, and you can see the 129 and NZB show that pattern. The heteroplasmic animal is depressed. It just sits in its cage, it hardly moves at all. We then ask, does it affect the neuropsychiatric behavior of these animals? So we use what's called the Barnes maze. This is elevated off the floor, and behind this one hole is a black box the mouse can hide in. We have different colored panels so the mouse can orient, and we put the mouse in the middle, and it begins to explore, finding a way to escape until it finds the hole. So over successive days, the NZB homoplasmic and the 129 homoplasmic animals learn how to find the hole. Heteroplasmic animal is slower, but it still learns. Then if we wait two days and repeat the experiment, 
129 animals immediately remember and jump in the hole. The NZB animals immediately remember and jump in the hole. Heteroplasmic animal has no long-term memory. It just starts all over again. So therefore, simply fixing two normal mitochondrial DNAs, thus defying internal inheritance, might wipes out the neuropsychiatric behavior of these animals. Moreover, there's a good correlation between autism spectrum disorder and the gut microbiome. So if our model is correct, then the mitochondria should regulate both the uh, autism spectrum disorder and the gut microbiome. And here you see the 129, the heteroplasmic, the NZB, and the control. And this is the Shannon diversity of the gut microbiome. And you can see a striking correlation between the mitochondrial genotype and the gut microbiome. Or if we look at the ND6 mutant animal versus the control, again, we see that Shannon diversity is controlled by the mitochondrial genotype. And that's directly related to the mitochondrial ROS production. Uh, and we can knock out the ROS production by putting catalase into the mitochondria genetically. And when we do that, we can reverse this effect and in fact, increase Shannon diversity. So if we look at the relationship between all the different uh, mitochondrial environmental effects and genotypes, when we decrease mitochondrial ROS, we switch the uh, direction of the gut microbiome. And when we increase mitochondrial ROS, we reverse that process. So basically then, mitochondria is the link between autism spectrum disorder and the gut microbiome. And therefore they're segregating together because they have the common uh, mediating va variable, the mitochondrial DNA. So what about some of the syndro syndromic um, autisms? Well, this is uh, fragile X syndrome. And if we look at the flight muscle of the fly, we see a striking change in the NAD-NADH ratio, and we see in the flight muscle the fragmentation of the mitochondria relative to the control. So we're seeing the same pathophysiology in a, uh, a fragile X model. And what about Angelman syndrome? We published this many years ago. If we look at the synapses of the Angelman syndrome, mitochondria are damaged and small and decreased in number, and the uh, complex two and three activity is reduced. If we look at crater willi syndrome, also related to uh, autism, we see that the, um, the SLC25A12, that's the uh, aspartamate carrier, is strongly downregulated in crater willi muscle and heart. And this enzyme, the aquaflorin-3, which moves the hydrogen peroxide out of the mitochondria, is completely shut down, meaning the mitochondrial DNA must be massively damaged. So finally, the idea is that the mitochondria is the integrator between the environment and subtle changes in the nuclear DNA and the mitochondrial DNA. When these changes are minimal, the, of the mitochondria sends entered, um, metabolic signals to the nucleus, changes the epigenome, to alter expression of nuclear and mitochondrial gene to create a energetic homeostasis and normal health and life. But if either nuclear or the mitochondrial variation is too great or the environmental stressor is too high, then this feedback system fails, we get an energetic decline and we get neuropsychiatric disorder and disease. So finishing up then, we have now shown from our various studies that these phenotypes can be caused by a single mitochondrial DNA point mutation or a nuclear mutation. They change the same metabolic processes as is autism. They change oxidative phosphorylation. We've now shown why the 3243 mutation causes autism. 
We've now shown why the nuclear encoded genes will give you the same biochemical defect. We've shown how calcium metabolism will markedly affect mitochondrial function. We've shown how uh, GABA um, variation, which is involved in, Prader, um, in Angelman syndrome, directly affects mitochondrial function. We've shown how transcriptional regulation directly regulates mitochondrial function, and therefore why all of these different neuropsychiatric disorders can all be linked back to genes to regulate the mitochondria. And all of these syndromic forms of autism uh, have, are slowly being shown to have fundamental OxFos defects. So I'd just like to finish by mentioning all the great people that did all this work. This is done over many, many years. The most recent work in the, in the mouse with uh, Martin Picard and Megan McManus all of the autism work were done by uh, Tal Yardeni, and um, all of the uh, nuclear cytoplasmic interaction work was done by Petrovsky, and these are the supporting people that make all this work possible. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Wallace. It's the it's just amazing to have you walk us through the incredible incredible genetic complexities of mitochondrial disease. Um, but, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, the correlation between mitochondria and all of these various um, other diseases hopefully will help to propel us into getting some additional treatments and additional resources for studies. So we've had a couple, we've had two questions come in and um, we're- Yes, ma'am. The, the... Yes. So two of the, one of the first question is on, back in the, in the beginning of the presentation on slide three, you were talking about, um, you were discussing the gene mutations. What is the impact of a, of a defect to ND5 that wasn't listed on that graph? Is there an impact to ND5? Yeah. I think it was slide Yes, three. certainly. Um, but there are, yeah, well, there are multiple mutations um, that have been found in ND5. And uh, those can all be found in our website, MitoMap, as, uh, as the coordinator mentioned. Um, so different ones of those mutations have different severity of effect on respiratory complex one. And the, uh, the point I'm trying to make here is the mildest mitochondrial variants are the ones that are going to give the neuropsychiatric disorders, such as autism or attention deficit disorder or um, intellectual disabilities. But more severe mutation, the uh, next higher level, such as um, some of the mutations can give you optic atrophy. And in even higher mutations, more classically seen, can give you the much more severe disease called Lee syndrome. So uh, you, it's not just the gene that's important, but it's the nature of the mutation and the severity of the effect it has on the enzyme and therefore the physiology of the cell that will determine how uh, much impaired the individual will be affected. But as um, the coordinator mentioned, the exciting thing, if this idea is right, and of course this is just Doug Wallace's bias seeing everything from mitochondrial perspective, but if this idea is right, the exciting thing is as we develop therapies for the primary mitochondrial diseases, those same ther therapies might be beneficial for a lot of other much more common diseases. So it's very important to study both, all the different classes of mitochondrial disease. I'm putting my, I'm betting my money on your theories, Dr. Wallace. <laughs> I'm sticking with you. Can heterozygous, <laughs> can heterozygous TFAM cause symptoms? Heterozygous T, oh, TRNA alanine? 
Is that can, what we're the question is? The question is, can heterozygous TFAM cause symptoms? Oh, TFAM. Um, can heterozygous TFAM mutants cause disease? Um, that's, that's an interesting question um, because um, in the nuclear gene world, there are only two gene copies, one from mother and one from father. So um, if you had both mutated, then you have lost that activity or a lot of it, and then you're going to get a relatively severe disease. However, it's possible that you could lose one of those genes, and if, if that was a rate-limiting biochemical step, that deficiency could have an effect that might be expressed in your clinical phenotype. However, each different nuclear gene has a different effect on the, on the amount of enzyme necessary to do that, the function. And so that particular pathway, which involves mitochondrial protein synthesis, I remember, um, we would have to look very carefully at how the, what the relationship is between that partial defect in that step and how it affected mitochondrial uh, function. So one of the interesting things about the autism studies is almost all of the null function mutations that were found by genomic sequencing were heterozygotes. That is, there was a loss of one allele, but the other allele was normal. Well, if you think about it, that would be like similarly to having a 50% heteroplasmy for the mitochondrial DNA mutation. So with some mitochondrial mutations, 50% heteroplasmy is very bad. But for other mitochondrial mutations, it's completely innocuous. So the same would be true for the nuclear mutation. A 50% reduction will really depend on the pathway and how reliant that pathway is on that particular step. So I, won't, I don't want to commit myself to this specific question because I would want to look at that pathway very carefully before I said yes or no, uh, whether that would have a clinical effect. But I certainly think in autism, a lot of the nuclear mutations that are a loss of a single allele are affecting mitochondrial function in the heterozygote form. It's never an easy answer, right? It's, it's complex genetics. Unfortunately not. Incredibly no. complex. So Dr. Wells, thank you so much for giving your time today. Your Thank discoveries you. and contributions to mitochondria and genetic science has completely changed the course of medicine. And we are forever grateful to you for your tireless commitment to helping the world understand mitochondrial disease. We thank you so much. As a reminder, today's presentation- well, we're with, we're, Go ahead, go ahead. I just wanted everybody to know that we at CHOP and our center are here for you. We've, I, we've, I've been working on this field for 50 years, and I am determined, before I fall off the twig, to find some therapies. So <laughs> stick with us. Don't give up hope. We appreciate that, Dr. Wallace, so incredibly much, more than you know. Absolutely. So as a reminder, today's presentation will be posted on our website for anyone who would like to listen again, share with others, or go back at a later date and listen again. You can find the full catalog of the MitoAction Expert Series presentations on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on our website, mitoaction.com. Thank you to each and every one of you for joining us for today's presentation. Have a wonderful weekend, and we look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care.